Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Tea with Tina podcast. And for today's tea, we're talking about some common fitness myths with a very special guest. I have my second guest ever on the podcast, Dr. Christopher Swart. Dr. Swart um, has a PhD in exercise physiology, and he is a college professor, so he's super knowledgeable. It was super fun doing this interview with him, and I can't wait to bring him back for a part two. Um, So definitely be on the lookout for that. If you really enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to give it a five-star review. Write a little review if you would like. Um, Take a look in the show notes. I link everything down there. If you do a review and screenshot it, send it to me. I give you free stuff. So what's not to like about that? (laughs) Um, But without further ado, let's dive right into the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Tea with Tina podcast. And on today's episode, I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Christopher Swart. Um, And he's going to help us do some health and fitness myth busting today. So hello there, Dr. Swart. Hello, Tina. Pleasure to uh, be here. Thank you for letting me, you know, share my knowledge with with your listeners. I I, uh, really look forward to this. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Um, So why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yep. So currently I am an assistant professor uh, of exercise science at American International College in Springfield, Massachusetts. So my main background and basically, you know, what I got into the field was more so related to sport performance. So when I was a young, you know, athlete, I played all kinds of sports. I loved, you know, influencing, you know, my health and my ability to, you know, help other athletes as a leader. I was a quarterback. So I really enjoyed, you know, kind of being a part of that type of process from an athletic development standpoint. And then as time went on, I said, you know what, I really want to help athletes develop and become better athletes as the time went on, because I felt like when I was a young athlete, I didn't have that type of guidance from people. So I decided to go to college as an athletic trainer and made a switch really quick to exercise science because I realized that I fell in love with more so the performance side than the rehabilitation side. And make a long story short, I worked at the University of Connecticut for a while. I worked at the University of Maryland, Iowa. I spent time in Division I athletics, but I really wanted to educate people. That was like my thing. That's what I felt that I, I really had a good grasp of how to take complex topics and make them simple for athletes or the general public or anybody that's interested in furthering their knowledge within the field of fitness and health and so on and so forth. So I decided to get my PhD. I did that in Massachusetts at Springfield College. I worked at uh, multiple different institutions at this point. I mean, AIC is my fourth institution that I've worked for as a college professor. Um, I teach areas related to nutrition. I teach program design. I teach medical physiology, how the body works, anatomy. I mean, literally just like a potpourri of everything. 
Um, I'm pretty active on social media. I try to create like online content and courses and, you know, just trying to let people know that, hey, the basics still work. The basics are important. And one of the biggest things that I see in the field of fitness and health is all these misconceptions, which is why I reached out to yourself to create a podcast like this that really highlights like, hey, these are the things that you shouldn't necessarily pay attention to. These are the things that, you know, like, what can we, I don't know, how can we look at fitness myths and debunk them in a way where you're going to get the the most amount of progress? Um, And that's kind of, you know, what we're going to do today. So I'm really looking forward to it for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I love that you, you kind of went in originally educational wise for more of like that rehab athletic training route. And then you saw that need for, for more of the general health. Cause I do feel like there's such a big need to educate on the basics. There's so much noise out there, so much fluff and fancy terms and everything. I think we need, you know, just that black and white basics more than ever. So I'm, I'm really yeah. glad that, that you're here and we can start that myth busting. <laughs> awesome, awesome. I love it. And I got my tea. I'm ready to go. Oh, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, what's the first myth that you have for us? So the first thing that I think comes up a lot, and it's more so on the female side, but it comes up on the male side as well. There's a lot of people out there that feel like when I lift weights or if I start a weightlifting program that I'm going to look bulky, I'm going to gain a lot of muscle. And that's not what I want for my health and fitness program. That's what some people think. And one of the things that I like to talk about on different podcasts and just as an educator in general is you're not going to gain muscle mass at an extremely fast rate. And typically, like if you're lucky, especially when you first start working out, you might gain like a pound or two of muscle per month. So my point here is muscle growth is very slow. So if you're afraid of looking bulky, it's not just going to happen overnight. It's not like you're just going to wake up one morning, look in the mirror. Oh my God, I gained all this muscle. That's not what I wanted. So you get the opportunity throughout your fitness program to make adjustments if you are gaining muscle too quickly. Now, one of the things that I think a lot of people when they first get into fitness don't realize is you have to do certain things to gain muscle mass. You have to do certain things to gain strength. So when you, when it comes to rest periods, number of sets, number of repetitions, you know, you have to have a plan based off of what the goal that you're looking for is. So oftentimes, like I said before, people think the meat, the the second I start touching a weight, I gain muscle. Well, if you're looking to gain muscle, you have to lift in a certain way. You have to have generally moderate intensity. You have to lift relatively close to failure. What that means is if you're doing like, you know, let's say 10 repetitions, you might only have two or three left in the tank, so to speak. So you're pretty close to like your all out ability of what you can do for that particular set. Now, and you also have to eat high protein. I mean, there's nutritional components. There's a lot of factors there. So it's a lot of work to gain muscle mass. On the flip side of that, I think a lot of people can benefit, just about everybody can benefit from just general strength training. So when people say, oh, I'm afraid of lifting because I don't want to get bulky, what I tell them is, okay, then don't lift in that manner. 
lift in a way where you're going to build strength. You're going to improve your nervous system. And what that basically entails is high resistance. So heavy weight for lower repetitions. And a lot of times people will say, I want to resistance train because I want to be toned. That's a very common thing that people are looking for. How do I tone myself out? And one of the ways to do that is, or arguably the best way to do that is resistance training, using heavy weights for lower repetitions and making sure that you're in a situation where you're creating a dietary habit where you can create fat loss and that comes through a calorie deficit. So the bottom line before I let you kind of move and take that and run with it is it doesn't matter. You can lift weights in a manner where you're gaining strength, not bulky, not to the situation where like you feel like you're going to look like a bodybuilder, so to speak. And like I said, it happens both, you know, female clients and male clients of mine. I get it on both sides. Sometimes they both say that I don't want to be bulky, but if you do it in the right way, it doesn't have to, you know, basically equate to those results. Yes, I 100% agree with everything you just said. Um, I get that all the time too from females. They see that I, my message is find your strength. You want to, you know, be strong. And they're like, that's cool that you want to lift weights and everything, but I don't want to get big and bulky and buff. And I'm like, look at me though. I mean, I live pretty heavy and I'm not big and bulky. Like you would say, um, one thing that I've found too, that's common when people say that they get bulky from lifting weights is it comes down to diet. So they have that excess fat on them. They end up lifting weights. So then they do build some muscle, but then they're not losing that layer of fat. So it just kind of pushes everything out. So then they tend to get that bulkier appearance. So if they are getting that little bit of a bulkier appearance, I always say, Hey, you know, maybe let's address the nutrition aspect of things. You might be eating too many calories, or we might need to readjust your macronutrients or something like that. And that's, that's an issue I see a lot too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So what about the next thing we got here? So the next one, which is something that comes up a lot, I see like when I go work out in fitness centers, I see this a lot. I see people spend like 20 minutes, you know, it might be an exaggeration for some people, but it's not for others. 20 minutes, like doing static stretching. And when I say static stretching, what I mean by that is holding a stretch Let's say, for example, you're standing upright and you just reach down to bend and touch your toes, um, holding that stretch for, let's say, somewhere between 30 and 60 seconds. That's what we call static stretching. So you're not moving throughout the stretch. You're holding it for some duration. And I see people waste what I would consider as a waste of time doing those things and thinking that that's something that they have to do before they start their workout session. And what we now know based off of a lot of papers that have come out and a lot of good data is we want to do movement before we start working out through the range of motion of what we're actually going to utilize when we go through our workout session. So these are things like pulling your knee up to your chest, you know, kicking your butt with your heel, keeping your legs straight and kicking it out in front of you as, as kind of as high as you can. Um, that's like a simplistic way of explaining some of these things, but that's what we call dynamic movement. And that's, that's movement where 
you're warming up your tendons, you're warming up your ligaments, you're going and taking joints to the range of motion that you would use when you actually go through a squat or a bench press or a deadlift or whatever exercise that you're using for that session. So my biggest thing is I just think that people are wasting time doing that. And we also see that if you do too much static stretching before you work out, you might lose a little bit of explosiveness, um, that ability to produce force quickly. Right. So if you spend too much time doing that, maybe depending on what your goal is, you're not actually getting the results that you're really looking to get. And so I'm a big proponent of let's get rid of that beforehand. Uh, let's do more dynamic stretching. Let's do more cardiovascular exercise, you know, hop on a treadmill for five minutes before you work out, hop on a bike, um, do something that's going to get your heart rate up, get your blood pressure up, um, get, get the blood flow moving throughout your body. That's, what's going to help get oxygen and nutrients to your muscles before exercise. That's going to be a much better strategy than sitting there doing all those static stretching. Like I said, some people spend 20 minutes or longer doing those things. And I think we can optimize it in a much better fashion um, just by spending, like I said, a couple minutes on a treadmill, get the blood pressure up, do some dynamic movement, boom, move right into your workout session. Uh, and we know that when you work out and let's say you do some mass, uh, some major exercise, like a squat, for example, you typically have warm up sets within that squat exercise anyways, that exactly. also helps prepare you for that specific movement that you're going to do. So move more towards dynamic, not so much static before the workout. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I feel like there's so many conflicting studies out there about, you know, should you stretch this many times a week for how long and whatnot. But I feel like the general consensus is, you know, the static stretches, they tend to be more after the workout. Um, or maybe if you're feeling extra sore one day and you want to kind of stretch some things out, but the dynamic stretches, and like you said, warming up for a couple minutes on a piece of cardio equipment, that's by far way better <laughs> in yeah. helping warming up the muscles. Um, even me, I have um, for my online training clients, I have a program called intro and it's meant for, you know, people just beginning its body weight. And then they eventually work their way into like dumbbells and then into the gym. And I purposely program a couple dynamic movements to help prep them for their work. Um, so it's in there without them even thinking about it, but it really does does help them for sure. Hmm. Um, now you talking about that kind of got me thinking with the whole warming up aspect, what is your thoughts on doing cardio before a workout? Because me personally, I've always been the oddball. I feel like I actually enjoyed doing my cardio before my lift. Um, I wear um, a my zone heart rate monitor and just for getting my heart rate more into the optimal zones, if I do a 20, 30 minute cardio session beforehand, I burn more calories for one. I hit, you know, a higher intensity and I, I feel good during my lifts. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's a question that comes up all the time in the field of, you know, exercise science, health and fitness. Which one do I do first? Am I losing you know, some benefit if I do cardio first and strength training second or vice versa. Here's my like simple answer to that question. Number one, it depends on what your goal is. 
So if your goal is to become obviously more cardiovascularly advanced, if you're looking to be a, if you're looking to run some five Ks, if you're looking to improve, you know, how you can recover from one exercise session to the next or one set to the next, if you feel you need that cardiovascular adaptation, then I think you should do that first. And then you can do your strength training second in the overall workout session. If your main goal is to get stronger and strength is something that I always want people to improve upon because I think strength is like the ultimate biomotor ability. If you get stronger, you're going to be able to run faster. If you get stronger, if you're an athlete, you can change direction faster. You have more power. Um, we even see data where like, if you get stronger, you can develop a better cardiovascular system and your ability to like produce force when you're running, for example, or whatever, whatever that situation may entail. So if cardiovascular, and that's the goal you're looking for, do that first. If strength training is what you're really looking for and you want to get stronger, do that first. So it doesn't, it's not like it's a massive difference, which one you do first, where it does play a massive role is if you want to build muscle, if strength training and getting as strong as you possibly can is the most important goal for yours, then yes, you need to make sure that you lift first and do cardiovascular exercise second. Um, there is something known as the interference effect. If you go into the research a little bit, uh, people will talk about this. I think it's probably blown out of proportion, to be honest with you. And the interference effect is basically, if I do a lot of strength training and I do a lot of cardio, are, is it going to like counterbalance each other? And am I just going to like spin my wheels in the mud? That's okay. basically what the, that's basically what the interference effect is. Um, and so it, it all goes back to the goal, but if you're going to do both in the same day. So a lot of times people ask me like, okay, Dr. Swart, if I want to resistance train and do cardio in the same day, they're both equally important. Which one should I do first or second? Usually what I'll tell people is do your strength training earlier in the day, make sure that you get that taken care of. That's when your nervous system is you know, going to be able to produce the most amount of force and power. And then maybe later on in the day, if you separate it by like four, six hours, then you can go ahead and do some of your aerobic work, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right. So like you're saying, you see excellent results doing it the opposite way, right? You do your cardio first and then you do some of your strength training second. So the bottom line is it can be done either way, but if your goal is one or the other preference that first. I gotcha. Yeah. And I say at the very least, if, if you still feel, I don't know, not warmed up going right into a lift, I would say, like you were saying, doing that little cardio warm up five, 10 minutes, that's usually enough to kind of get your body prepped and ready to go right into your lifts. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. Good to know. Good to know. Um, next myth. So the next one is there's a lot of people out there that believe that high protein diets lead to kidney issues or oh, yes. liver <laughs> issues, you know, like this has been something that's brought up a lot. And this is something that I talk about at nauseum, but like, I'm so passionate about because I think that one of the best things people can do for their overall health is eat a, a higher protein diet. And that's different for every person. So, you know, I can't tell you specifically, unless I met you, what a high protein diet is for you. 
Now on average, like with my clients, a lot of times what I do is I try to get them to eat about one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Now for most people, that's probably a little bit more than they need, but I do think that protein is that important. So I prioritize it in that manner. I want them to think about eating protein, basically every meal, trying to hit as close as one gram per pound, but you don't have to hit that. Basically you can be anywhere between, if you're active, somewhere between 0.7 grams per pound, all the way to one, or maybe even a little bit higher, depending on what your goals are. The problem is people that are on high protein diets, if you go to get a physical, like let's say, for example, you go to your doctor. And when I get into conversations like this, I always tell people, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm an academic doctor. So I'm just sharing information that is out there. And oftentimes what happens is when you go to a physical appointment, your physician may see that there's certain biomarkers in your blood testing that increase if you're on a high protein diet. And basically some of these things are something known as creatinine and what's called BUN, B-U-N, blood urea nitrogen. And without getting into making it complex, because that's not the purpose of this podcast, but to make it simple, if you eat a lot of protein, specifically animal-based protein. So if you eat things, things like chicken, you know, beef, um, pork, anything along those lines, you're going to increase something known as creatinine. It's simply just a byproduct of protein metabolism. So if that goes up in the bloodstream, some physicians think that there's kidney issues because that's a marker of kidney health. There's also something known as, like I said, bun, blood, urea, nitrogen, and protein has something known as nitrogen. That's a component of protein. So if you eat an egg, it's got some nitrogen with it. Technically, nitrogen is toxic to your body. So your body has to have a way of getting rid of it. And the way it does that is something known as urea. So think of urea, urine, they sound similar. Urea is your way of getting rid of that nitrogen. So to make a long story short, if you have a high protein diet, both creatinine and your bun ratio could go up. Now, typically they're in the normal range. It's not like they go up to a point where it's signifying that you're in an unhealthy situation, but if they do go up a little bit and they're in the normal range, you simply have to make sure that you let your physician know, which is something that I'm very passionate about telling people, let your physician know, I have a higher protein diet, I lift weights, I exercise on a regular basis, and that might be the reason why my creatinine in my bun ratio is a little bit higher. Because if you look at kidney function, because the whole purpose of this myth was to talk about how high protein diets are not harmful for your kidneys. When you look at the overall marker of kidney function, there's something known as GFR, which is how well your kidneys are ultimately gonna funnel and uh, filter blood. That number remains perfectly normal. So the whole thing is high protein diets will change some of these numbers, but not in a manner that it's unhealthy and not in a manner where it's creating any type of kidney issues. And I'm a big proponent of high protein diets because protein goes well beyond just building muscle. A lot of times people think, oh, high protein diets, muscle building. Well, guess what? In order to break down carbs, fats, and protein, you need something known as enzymes. 
we need protein to build that, to break it down. In order for, for your immune system to function effectively, we need protein. In order for your certain hormones that are within your body, they're protein-based. We need protein to build those things. In order for you to build red blood cells, which carry oxygen to muscle during exercise, you need protein. So I'm a huge proponent of eating as much protein as possible. Typically, you know, my general recommendation, like I said before, is one gram per pound, but the better off you can do with your protein, the better off I think your overall health is going to be. The more you're going to sustain lean muscle, the better off your tendons and your ligaments are going to be. And typically the better off your quality of life is going to be in the long run. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Um, I actually was just reading a study, I think, that was just published. They said that people who eat higher protein diets were shown to live longer, which I don't doubt it. (laughs) Um, That was also very interesting how you described um, with the blood work, how that can show, you know, with the the kidney function and everything. So I've always, you know, you always hear, oh, don't eat too much protein because it can harm your kidneys. Um, but I never heard it broken down like that. So that's interesting to have that background info about that. Um, but yeah, another thing too, with high protein, that's really good is it helps keep you fuller longer. So for those who are looking for fat loss and weight loss, it, it makes you so you're not hungry all the time. Um, and when you are trying to lose that fat, it helps preserve the muscle that you have. So you can look nice and lean and not, you know, all skinny and lanky. Um, so that helps a lot too. Yeah. Two quick things before we move on that I'll just throw out there for you. You're hundred percent right. When you eat protein, there's a hormone that goes to your brain that signals that you're full, that you don't need to continuously eat. So protein is like you said, very satiating. It makes you feel full. Um, you know, it, it, protein, it, it, there's so many benefits to protein, obviously. Um, but you know, the fact that it makes you feel full and you don't need to eat more is beneficial, but also protein is the least likely macronutrient to get stored as body fat. And when you, when you eat protein, about 25% of the calories that are in the protein that you eat, it gets burned in the process of digestion and absorption which is something that most people don't talk about. So, you know, if you eat a fat source or a carbohydrate source, a lot of those calories have the potential to get stored as fat, whereas protein, it's less likely. So that's an important thing that I think the listeners could benefit from. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I don't think it's, um, that information isn't easily accessible to everybody out there, which is crazy, right. but so I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, all right. We're, we're doing pretty good here. What, what's the next myth you got for us? Oh, the next one comes up so much. It comes up in my classes all the time. And this is what is known as starvation mode. So there are people that believe that if I eat too little, that all of a sudden my body's going to take all those calories and store them immediately as fat. And if you try to diet too quickly, you're creating problems as far as fat storage, so to speak. And this myth is definitely, it's, it's a myth, but it's not a hundred percent myth. There is a little bit of truth to this. And let me explain why. Okay. So if you are to diet, so let's say, for example, just to throw a number out there to make it easy, let's say, for example, you're eating 2000 calories per day, which is a general recommendation, you know, whether you're male or female, that's just a general recommendation that's thrown out there. 
Um, and that's what you see on nutrition labels. It's based off a 2000 calorie diet. If I decide one day that I'm going to wake up and I'm going to eat 1500 calories. So I'm going to cut my total calories by 25%. That's a decent calorie deficit. If I sustain that, what's going to ultimately happen is your body is going to want to defend against that weight loss. And weight loss is a stressor to your body. And that's something that I think all people need to realize if they're going to try and lose some weight. It's a stressor. It's not easy. And you need to understand that as you start the process. You also need to understand that when you go through the dieting process, your metabolism will slow down a little bit. But it's not to the point that people make it seem like some people make it seem like if you eat too little, that all of a sudden, like I said, every calorie you eat, you eat gets stored as fat. In general, the way that your metabolism works is it will shut down a little bit, but it's only going to be, let's say, 10 to 20 percent. So it's not going to be a massive shutdown, but it is something worth talking about. And so that could be for a 2000 calorie diet, that could be somewhere between hundred and 200 calories. Now, like I said, that's not a massive amount, but it is something to discuss. Now, when you go through the dieting process and you're, you're trying to lose weight, one of the best recommendations that I can give to people to avoid this like metabolic adaptation, so to speak, is lose weight slowly. People want to just like step on the scale. They want the immediate results. I understand that. Uh, we live in a society where a lot of people get instant gratification. We can pay a bill online in two seconds. You know, if I want to order something on Amazon, in a lot of cases, if I really wanted to pay the money, I could get it delivered to my doorstep tomorrow. But weight loss doesn't work like that. And you're so much better off setting up your weight loss progress little by little Typically, what I recommend is don't lose any more than like half a percent to 1% of your total body weight per week. And so it, it, it has to happen at a slow rate so your body can adjust along the way. Another piece of advice that I give people is don't diet for like months on end. So one of the best things that you can do to see long-term success, maybe diet for four to six weeks. And then we do something known as diet breaks. And diet breaks are just simply, you know, going at a week at your general maintenance calories. So some calories that you would eat just to maintain your weight. And then as time goes on, you go back into a deficit. And when we see that, we see people with better results. They have better metabolic health. They maintain more muscle mass and lose more fat mass in the long run. So the bottom line is starvation mode is overblown. It's, it's kind of real, but it's a small percentage. And the bottom line is lose weight slowly and consistently over time, take breaks. And I promise you'll be able to maintain it for a lifetime, as opposed to going through the whole process of yo-yo dieting, which I don't want to see anybody go through because it's it's not something that you want to go down because if you're yo-yo dieting, Every time you go through that process, it gets more and more challenging. I don't need to go into the physiology of that, but it does. Your body fights against you if you're a yo-yo dieter and you try and lose the same 10 pounds over and over and over again. It gets more and more challenging. And it's, it's, 
kind of an uphill battle that I don't want to see anybody go down. Right. I gotcha. And I think another kind of real world example that happens when people diet um, kind of too quickly, they, they cut things too drastically is they're probably eating more than they realize overall. Like they might be hitting a thousand calories or something like that for a couple days. And then they go and binge and they don't think about it. And their overall calorie intake might actually put them in a surplus in the long run. Um, so they might not even be aware of what they're eating that way too, um, which right. I think plays a big role. Now, another thing with, um, the dieting, if you are dieting and you're down to a pretty low intake for your body, something smart to do would probably be to reverse diet. What are your thoughts on reverse dieting? I love reverse dieting. I, I wish more people talked about reverse dieting, to be yes. honest, with you. because in, in a lot of cases, when, when the general public goes to a personal trainer, oftentimes they need to do a reverse diet. They need to eat more calories. I should say good calories, right? They need to eat right. the right foods. They need to increase their metabolism, do a little bit of strength training, put on a little bit of weight, and then go backwards and cut that fat in a healthy manner. Um, that's, what's going to bring your hormonal profile back to where it needs to be. Most people are hyper stressed. Let's just face it, right? Like people have bills. You have a lot of stress in your job. You have a lot of stress in your family life, personal relationships, any, I mean, all of these things. And a lot of times people don't realize how much that impacts their overall fitness program as well. And so we're just, hyper stressed. And when you get into a fitness program and you start working with a trainer, a reverse diet, in my opinion, is oftentimes a really good strategy. Eat more, exercise more, let your body regulate itself, then start to decrease fat from there. It's just reverse dieting is simply just a fancy way of getting yourself back to normal. What, yes. what, what is actually normal, not what you think is normal, what's actually normal. And then let the exercise professional that you hire or you're working with, let them dictate from there, you know, how they're going to help you once you actually feel normal to get the body composition or the fitness goals, whatever your goals are to get that roadmap for you. Right, right. And I think something too, a lot of people don't realize is, you know, they're always afraid to eat more, because they don't want to gain weight. Um, but if it's under a controlled environment, it's good. And I mean, some people don't gain weight, but most people will gain a couple pounds, but it, it's good pounds. And um, when they have those extra calories, they have more energy. So they'll kind of burn some more calories too, because they might be able to lift heavier. Um, their neat activity might increase as well. They might be fidgeting more, walking around more, moving more. Um, so they'll burn more that way too. They'll feel better. Yep. A, a thousand percent. People will re typically report, like you just said, they have more energy. They can do more things throughout the course of the day. Um, I, I love it. I think, I think it's a great message and something that we need to, you know, talk about more in the fitness industry. Right. I agree. Um, all right. Now I think we have time for one more cause I could talk all day <laughs> about these myths. There's so many out there. Um, but yeah, let's do one more. Okay. Let's do. Okay. So I've got four. So let me pick what I think is something that'll help people a lot. Let's talk about creatine a little bit. Okay. Um, I think creatine is one of those 
supplements that people don't, they don't give it enough respect, in my opinion, in the fitness industry. Creatine is one of the most well-studied, safe supplements that are out there on the market. Now, I'm not a big supplement proponent. So I always say that right from the start. I think that you should get, you know, your, your, you should eat whole foods. You should make sure you're paying attention to your vitamins and minerals. You should make sure that you're paying attention to hydration, you know, um, separate your meals throughout the course of the day, all that type of stuff. But I do think that for people who are looking to get stronger, for people who are looking to get more powerful um, and really kind of take their fitness to the next level, creatine should be an important conversation because you should get creatine to just start off this conversation. It should be from a reputable source, obviously. So one of the problems with the supplement industry is it's not regulated. So the FDA doesn't step in and say, this is a good supplement, this isn't. Technically, what has to happen is you have to get a supplement that's third-party tested. So you should see something on the label. Like with my clients, I tell them, look for something that says USP or NSF, Gatorade Informed Choice, something that shows what's on the label is actually what's in the product. But in general, creatine is really beneficial. Creatine helps you, like I said, increase your strength and power. But the reason why I have been touting creatine for the general public as well, not just for athletes, is we're seeing good creatine research for brain health. It's increasing cognitive function. We're seeing it increase um, just in general um, how the brain basically grows. We're seeing helpful benefits for creatine for bone health, especially for people as they age. Um, when you get into something known as osteoporosis or bone mineral density issues, creatine might be beneficial there. We're seeing creatine benefits for things like cardiovascular health. Um, there's a lot of benefits there. So I am just trying to get people to be aware of creatine. I'm not saying anybody has to take creatine, but I think it's definitely something if you're interested in the health and fitness space, creatine is definitely something worth looking into in my opinion. Um, it's a daily supplement. It's something that you take every day. It's you take generally three to five grams. Um, a bigger person might need to take a little bit more. A smaller person, you know, might be, might be a little bit less, but I do think it's one of those things that's worth looking into. It's kind of on my Mount Rushmore of supplements, so to speak. <laughs> so I, I do share it with people um, because it's not a steroid. People think it's a steroid. Right, because, yep. <laughs> so there's this whole thing of people will say you need to cycle on and off of creatine. And that's when, that's when it gets into this steroid conversation. When people use the word cycle, uh -huh. that's when people <laughs> look at it as, as a steroid. It's not creatine is natural. You have creatine, you know, in your muscles, everybody does. There's creatine in animal-based products. It's in food. Um, it's just something that I think people should look into if they want to take their strength training, resistance training, health and fitness to the next level, um, definitely something worth, worth exploring. Now, is there a best time of day to take it? Should you take it right before your workout or can you take it any great, time of the day? Great question. I love that question because it's something that's coming up a lot now recently in the health and fitness space. Okay. Um, my general advice to people is if you're going to take creatine, just take it when it's convenient for you. Um, you know, there's no, 
because creatine doesn't have an immediate effect. So if you were to take it pre-workout, it's not like that creatine that you just took pre-workout benefits that workout. Um, creatine is something that has to build up in your body. Okay. So usually the way it works is you can load it. So you could take like extra creatine. So somewhere between instead of three to five grams, you could take 15 to 20 grams per day and for like seven days, basically a week. And that would maximize the creatine within your muscle, or you can just take it slowly over time for about 30 days. And that would maximize the amount of creatine that you have in your muscle. So either way, you're still getting to the same finish line. One just happens sooner than the other, but time of day is not a massive factor. If you are saying to yourself, what is the what might be the optimal time to take it? There's some recent research that's come out that says you might want to consider taking it post-workout. I still take it pre-workout. I take it kind of, you know, in at the time point in the day that I'm going to remember it most because I think that's most important. I don't want to miss it. Um, but if you really want to try and optimize it, I don't know, it might be more beneficial, like splitting hairs to take it right after your workout. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's not a significant difference when you take it throughout the course of the day. Okay. Um, and one more thing on creatine, I, I feel like a concern for females in particular is you hear a lot about, Oh, I, well, I took creatine and it made me gain weight. Yep. Um, cause it, it helps you store more water in your muscles. Correct. That's correct. Yep. So I mean, what, what can people expect, I guess, weight wise when they take creatine? Yep. So when you take creatine, you're going to gain some weight. So I should have said that. And I'm glad you did bring that up because you're going to gain some water weight. Now, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, people used to think that when you took creatine, that water that you were ingesting, that extra water that was stored was like bloating weight. Like it was in your stomach and, you know, it, it made you feel sluggish and bloated. Well, we now know that when you take creatine, yes, you do store more water. Yes, you're going to gain some weight, but that weight or that water weight is going to go within the muscle. So it's going to make your muscle look bigger. It's not going to make you bloated and it's not going to make your stomach bigger. The creatine doesn't sit within your stomach. Creatine sits within your muscle. And when it's there in higher concentrations, it pulls water with it. So essentially your muscle just gets bulkier and that's the weight that you're gaining. You're not gaining water weight from the standpoint of, like I said, it's not like it's like that extra fat that people think is around the midsection. Right. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. I just want to throw that out there because I know yeah. that's always oh, that's the a big question. fear. <laughs> yes. Um, but all right. Well, I think that wraps up our myth there. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, I'm just going to throw one other out there just in like a 30 second snippet. Yeah, um, you're fine. I see a lot of people doing um, fasted cardio, and I just want to throw out there for the listeners, um, don't feel like you have to, just because you see other people do it, not eat before you go do a cardiovascular session, thinking that it's going to lead to more fat loss. Promise me when I tell you, if you do fasted cardio, it might lead to more fat burning in that one workout, but in the grand scheme of the day or a week, it doesn't make any difference 
when you look at total calories. So at the end of the day, it's total calories that you're eating per day is what matters more so than trying to decide how you're going to situate your meals. Um, and so that's a big myth that I see out there. I don't want people to think that fasted cardio is like a key or like a magic um, solution in any way, shape or form to lose more fat. It's simply just a way of exercising and getting some adaptations. You can get some mitochondrial adaptations, which is basically allowing you to, you know, have some better ability to break down fats, but it doesn't lead to fat loss. And I think that's important. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like fasted cardio is so trendy nowadays. Like any of my clients when I get new clients, they're always like, well, what about fasted cardio? And, and yeah, I agree with everything you said. I mean, when it comes down to it, if you enjoy doing it and it, and you feel okay doing it, you don't feel starving and your energy is good, go ahead, do it. It's not going to hurt you, but you don't have to force yourself to do it. Right. Right. I just want people to know that it is, it's not a necessity. It's an option slash a tool. Yes. I gotcha. Um, and yeah, I think that will wrap things up. I'll definitely, I would love to have you back again (laughs) because we could talk for hours. Um, well, and you mentioned you were really active on Instagram, which I do love your Instagram. You post on there quite frequently and a lot of good stuff on there. So do you want to tell everybody what your Instagram is? Yep. So you can find me on Instagram. Obviously my handle is at Dr. D O C T O R dot Swart S W A R T. Um, I work at, like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, I work at American international college, which is in Springfield, Massachusetts. So if anybody wants to like hop on that website, uh, my emails on there, if you want to reach out to me and have any specific questions, but to be honest with you, if you're really looking to catch me, Instagram is by far the easiest way. I, I check it very frequently. Um, that's a quick way to ask me any questions or just stay up to date with what I'm doing uh, and go from there. Yeah, no, I, Tina, I appreciate it. This was excellent. I, I had a ball preparing for this and uh, you know helping to share some of these myths so people don't make the same mistakes that others have made along the way. Yes. Yeah. We definitely need to raise that awareness out there one person at a time. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> um, and I will definitely um, link uh, Dr. Swartz uh, Instagram in the show notes. I will um, link your, your college and everything like that. So they could check out that page. Um, so that way it'll be all there for you. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I think we will wrap things up here and until next time, guys. I will see you soon. Perfect. Thank you, Tina. I appreciate everybody. Thank you for listening.